You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, February 20th, 2019, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Kara Santamaria. Howdy. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Ooh, back on our usual night of recording, Wednesday. That's right. We are <laughs> back from the AAAS I realized that last week when we were talking about the AAAS, we never said what it stands for, as if all of our listeners know, and probably most of them do, but it is the American Association for the Advancement of Science, the AAAS. So it's it's a first time that we've been there. Actually, this is the first year they've had podcasting at all at the Mm -hmm. AAAS, and you could kind of tell. (laughs) This was was sort of their intro to podcasting, so it was kind of funny. It was. Let me just say, it was great. You're going to hear that show. That's the bulk of this episode. Is going to be what we recorded at the AAAS, and it was and it was very good. We had a good crowd, very enthusiastic, but it was very intimate. Yeah, and also in the middle (laughs) in the middle of a corner of an expo hall, so probably not the best. um, There'll be some background noise. There'll be some background. Yeah. Yeah, So yeah, it was in the. They, it was funny because, you know, uh, Liz found out from her friend who was presenting a podcast before us. She gets, you know, to the hotel. She's like, so I heard that you guys are set up in the corner of the expo and there are 10 chairs. <laughs> so Jay walks in the room. I tell him and, and he had kind and, of a meltdown. Uh, it was, it was <laughs> none too fond. <laughs> well, it's weird because, you know, we, we you have a unconscious expectation, you know, like – it just didn't – 10 chairs was like where people are going to be standing all over the place and that's basically what it turned into. Yeah, plus you were thinking about what are the ramifications for the uh, AV, you know, that's like also – Well, the AV part of it totally freaked me out. That was the part that I was the most worried about because I don't I don't even have microphones that can handle, you know, that type of noise. You know what I mean? Like our mics are different. The audio is maximized to be uh, – not not with an amazing amount of chatter in the background. Yeah. But it worked out well. No, it did. it did. Yeah. Oh, hey, Steve. Yeah. They had podcasting last year. I just looked it up. Oh, did they? Mm-hmm. They had live podcasts? Yeah. So they had a podcast stage at AAAS 2018. Oh, I see. Mm-hmm. So it's relatively new. But yeah. she did the, the coordinator. <laughs> I'm not sure what the exact first year was, but obviously, yeah, yeah we're, we're working on it. They, the coordinator, though, was impressed by the size and enthusiasm of our crowd, given the venue. She's like, oh, you guys usually have a bigger audience in this, don't you? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, just, a little yeah. bit. <laughs> a little bit. A little bit. Um, so we'll see. This is, I, I, as I told the guys, this is a building year. We're building a relationship with the AAAS. We're letting them know that science communication through podcasting is a thing and it's kind of important and not something to be put in the corner. And it's not new. But hey, but these meetings are always awesome. We got to meet a lot of people mm-hmm. and hopefully lined up some interviews that we'll be doing over the next couple of months. So it's always it's always, you know, as much about the networking as the actual show that you put on, you know. And we weren't just there for triple A S. That's oh, true. That's right. Uh-huh. We uh we went back to the CIA. We were vi- invited back and uh it was really cool. They have an internal podcast that mm-hmm. only people that work at the CIA can listen to and access. Or, you know, within the intelligence community itself. Yeah. Can you guys help me understand this? Because I feel like I would say things like, well, regular civilians won't be able to hear this or blah, blah. And they'd be like, no, no, no. This is internal, external. And I was like, I don't know what that what means. That? But they kept yes. saying it over and over. 
This podcast is internal, but each episode has a classification rating. And the episode right. that we were on by was necessity was unclassified mm -hmm. because we have no classification mm -hmm. clearance. But it right? still means that they don't air it for non-intelligence right. community. You won't listeners. find it on yeah. iTunes. Yes. Well, you will not find this on iTunes. Okay. So that was cool. And they, they did say that they were going to give us the audio from that. So you, if we get that audio, once they edit it, I guess they have to – Whatever, redact, whatever they have to redact. Oh, Once they, they'll give us a, a, an edited version of it. If they do, we'll make that available as premium content. If we're allowed to. Nice. Yeah, no, if, if we can. If they give it to us, I think then we could do whatever we want with it. Again, this if, was unclassified, our episode. This was more for us to tell them about critical thinking and you know what our approach to that for their own purposes. Yeah, it was yeah. unclassified by definition because we were there. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> yes, that's But it was pretty funny it. how at one point one of the people involved um, I asked about a certain clothing item and where this person got the certain clothing item and they covered the microphone to tell me and then realized they would have to redact that portion because what? something about being out in the community and letting people know where they shop is dangerous yeah. or counterindicated, I guess. Oh, if my you, gosh. Yeah, contraindicated if you work in the intelligence community. I was like, wow, it goes that deep. And even in the gift shop, there are signs next to the register that say that if you work for the intelligence community, you can't use credit cards here because they can trace back to you. And those credit card statements will say CIA on them. Mm -hmm. Ooh, interesting. Right? Why don't they just use one of those innocuous descriptors like, you know, when you buy porn online it's like you know uh, blah 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 not porn you yeah. know <laughs> xyz uh you know what they pamphlet, need they whatever need, so they i hear i hear CIA, about that they need a cia cryptocurrency <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, so give many so ideas buy, jay wait all stuff. they said was you can't use credit cards i think you can just use CIA. cash i'm pretty sure yeah. that's already a good cia crypto yeah they could use actual currency yeah, if you yeah. purchase everything you need with cia fun bucks yeah. if you guys if you guys remember now when, when we went there in october they they took a picture of us uh in the, oh, yes. in the main lobby and uh typically they would then uh they, they mail you the hard copy and we said back then well why don't you just email us the digital Image, image, and they said no. <laughs> nope. That's not going to happen because they don't want they don't want that image getting out there. And then you can look at the metadata, and you can kind of yeah. make a connection between that image and the CIA. So it's got to be a hard copy. So they they handed us the um you know the picture just this past weekend because they did they didn't mail it. They're like oh they're coming anyway. I'll just hand it to them. So that's and by the way, <laughs> it looks there. so photoshopped. I mean, partially because they said it is photoshopped, <laughs> not because we weren't actually at the CIA, but because when you stand in the lobby to take the picture, invariably there's somebody in the background that can't be photographed. So they take a photograph of a plate of the lobby on the same time of day so the lighting's correct then they take a picture of us and then they have that plate in case if they need to do any basically digital removal like, of randos like in the background basically oh, it's boy. a visual room noise yeah yeah visual room noise visual green screen however you want to put it no, yeah. they just before they take our picture they take a picture of the empty room first thing yeah, in it's the a morning. plate yeah and then yeah. yeah exactly then they just put us into the empty room yeah but it's funny they have to think about any pathway that could connect yep. Yeah, yeah like the security guard's yeah. not standing at uh, the station where he was the entire time we were being photographed. Right. I noticed that. That's right. Mm -hmm. Anyway, that's all fun to us because it's like a different <laughs> world. I have to think about <laughs> how, an, how another spy could use like the metadata from a photograph to figure out who's working for the CIA, whatever. It's funny. So, Bob, Look, I guess you know? I shouldn't write the metadata on the back of the picture, right? <laughs> <laughs> Just write, take it at CIA <laughs> yeah. and the date, yeah. well, Langley and the date. However, here's the other part of this, which is mm -hmm. cool. 
that they are trying to do a podcast for the outside world, right? So this would be a podcast that the CIA produces that's part of their outreach that would be accessible to everybody. Uh, and they, and they were literally consulting with us on how to do that, like how to make a podcast and like what audio equipment we would want, like really like t- interesting, like they needed that kind of technical consultation. I mean, we're happy to do it, but you know, it's they're really, this is, you get the feeling that the podcasting part is on a, the shoestring budget that they're trying to just do, you know, in house without a lot of support. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's a new medium for them. Yeah. Overall. Although yeah, they, they need- did ask what could we do if we had an unlimited funds. And yeah. That was it's exciting. Like, it's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> we'll fantasize with you about that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, so here's this is what we do. And this is what we do if we had unlimited CIA bucks. <laughs> Two CIA fun bucks. Things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fun bucks. But the, the people that now this will be the second time that we, we had a chance to talk to three of the same people or four of the same people. You know, it's funny, you know, we start to realize that these are, these are just people. You know what I mean? They're, they're really intelligent. Um, you could just tell that they're put together a little bit differently than the average person because they, they have to be, they have to be a specialist in something pretty much. We'll say they were trained. They weren't yeah. actually put together differently than we are. <laughs> they were trained. <laughs> they were assembled in the factory. It as is far funny, as we though, know, anyway. Right. They're people we would hang out with in real life for. Yeah, they're, they're sure. ordinary people. Yes. Yeah, that, that's true. I mean, that's but, just, like, just as you should expect. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, but you would. But you they know, have a particular you... set of skills. Yeah, but like not, not even. You know, we talk a lot about science. When you first think of a scientist, what do you come up with? And we have these biases, right? You think of like an old white dude with a beard in a lab coat. And when you think of a CIA quote unquote agent, what well, we know they're not actually called agents; Officer. they're called officers. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. What do you think of? And people think of like Jason Bourne, like a big muscly dude or something. But like we were talking to multi ethnic, you know, men, women, every kind of. Identity, young, young people, and people yeah, yeah. who don't ca- like look like they're packing heat. You know what I mean? Yeah, which is like, don't. yeah, which no. they, they don't carry they don't. guns. We're but I'm saying they don't look like that character either. They look like us. They look like nerds. Yeah, which is awesome. Yeah, yeah. Off- office workers. Yeah, <laughs> it really is. Because that's Scientists. basically what they are. Yeah, that's academics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we'll keep you updated on that. And if we get the audio from our the podcast that we recorded, we'll make that available. So I do want. I did want to talk about one news item from the AAAS. There was a lot, obviously, a ton of you know. Whenever you have a meeting like this, there's like this pulse of science news that that comes out. Uh, in press releases, et cetera. But this is one that caught my eye because it's a, a topic that we've talked about uh, many times before. This was Dr. Genevera Allen from Rice University has a warning about the use of big data in science. So essentially what she is saying is that increasingly scientists are using machine learning algorithms in order to evaluate large sets of data, right? So you have big data plus artificial intelligence. We've been talking about this for a while. And when you do that, you can you know, comb through this data and find all kinds of patterns, right, correlations. And it's a good way to generate hypotheses. But it is a, a, a very problematic way to, to test hypotheses. The problem is that the machine learning is getting really good at seeing patterns, just like people are, and it could find spurious correlations, right? Mm, you, know, mm-hmm. you guys remember that website, Spurious Correlations, right? So, mm, yeah, um, yeah. 
Mm-hmm. There's, there's all kinds of interesting but ultimately meaningless correlations in any big set of data. It's just statistical noise. Yeah, they're you like know. false positives, kind of. Yeah, they're false positives. Mm-hmm. But she was saying that increasingly, and she you know pr- produced analysis to show this, that you know, people are publishing papers that are just mining for correlations in big sets of data, and they may not really understand the software that they're using, you know, and that this is just gonna, this is just generating a ton of false positives in the literature. I mean, is this new information though, or haven't we? I mean, a we should have suspected this, and b we kind of already know this. Is this just kind of a a an important reminder people like big data is not going to solve every problem and reminder it's going to come with its its own set of caveats yeah so it's a good question it's an old problem that is now made bigger by mm. the use of data sets and machine learning to mm. uh, to to evaluate the data so the idea is that yeah like this is similar to p hacking or you know anything that you do to try to find positive results it's very easy to generate these spurious correlations. So what she recommends is she's not the first one to recommend this. There's a, this is now becoming a standard recommendation that a lot of people are, are making. And I think that we really need to move in this direction. So you can fix the problem by doing an internal control, meaning that if you think you find a pattern, then that becomes a hypothesis, right? Mm-hmm. And then you say, okay, if I look for this specific pattern again, this specific correlation in a fresh set of data, is it still there? Now, yeah. if this if this was a random randomness is clumpy, right? If this was just a mm-hmm. random statistical fluke, it shouldn't replicate in different data sets. But if it's Unless a real those data phenomenon, sets are big enough. Well, no, but no, no, not really, because mm. uh, if if it's really a new set of data. And you have the hypothesis ahead of time, then you could make actual statistical statements about the result. Yeah. But, and if the threshold is where it needs to be in order to say that, so like I need to find this X number of times or whatever, depending on how large the data set is. But I think the, the critical realization is that if you're just saying, is there any correlation in this data set? And Duh. then you, then if you apply, p-values to that. It's mm-hmm. meaningless because mm-hmm. you don't know how many potential correlations there were. There could be thousands. There could be millions. Millions, yeah. And, but if you say, is there this one specific correlation, now you can do statistics on that. But you have to do it in a fresh data set because otherwise you're just carrying the fluke forward. Yep. Uh, right. It goes back to a priori reasoning versus yes. talk. Yeah. And I um, think and other people have made this recommendation just not even in the context of big data and machine learning, just saying, you know what, researchers should probably when they when they do an evaluation where they find some correlation in a data set, they should do an or internal replication. They should you know replicate their own finding with new data before they publish. And that's not standard procedure right now? They just go right to publish? Most people, well, I don't know. Do most people use big data in their research right but now? But even if you're not using big data, just you, mm-hmm. you do a preliminary study and you publish the results. And, 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 the, and the excuse is, well, this is just preliminary and you're just putting it out there so that everyone could, you know, has a chance to try to replicate it. And that's fine. 
uh, as yeah, far as it goes. You just have to be clear about that. Yeah, but the, the other the, – the bigger question is, OK, while that's legitimate, as long as you're saying this is preliminary, this mm-hmm. is hypothesis generating, not hypothesis testing. But the problem is the literature – because people – there's so much pressure to publish. The literature mm-hmm. is getting flooded with these preliminary findings, most of which are not real. Yeah, and it's probably Mm. kind of buried. Like, at least I feel like in psychology and medicine and some of these areas, you might do like a pilot study. And that's very clear what you're doing. We're testing whether or not this methodology is appropriate. So we're going to do a pilot study on a small number of people. If we see that something is working, then we'll actually go through and do a a larger study. But it's in the title usually of the paper. This is a pilot study. That's important. But if people were building in internal replications before they go to publication, there would be a, lo- a drastic reduction in the false positives flooding the literature. And that would probably save a lot of people a lot of time. You yeah, know, but it would also mm-hmm. be really hard for people to justify their research funding if it took them that long to get a single publication. Well, you're work. right. You're right. And therefore, everything needs to change. That's why this mm-hmm. is not a simple change. Uh, you know, the academic expectations need to change. And funding cycles need to change. And every, you know, basically it needs to become standard procedure that it's expected, not that you're just going to crank out studies every time you get the minimal publishable unit of data. You put it yeah. out there. But that you, you, know, you do a certain number of internal replications and only publish things that seem to be real and really reduce the false positive rate. And in terms of just the – if you look at the efficiency of science, you know, just research in general, I think that that would probably be a more optimal mix Whereas yeah. right now, I think we are erring way too far to the false positive end. And it's a problem, especially in medicine, if you think about it. Because in medicine, people actually change the way they practice based upon those preliminary uh, studies when they really shouldn't. Well, so it's yeah. not just I mean, noise. It's actually a, having a negative effect on medical practice. Well, and think about big data in in practice. Like you said, medicine is an important area where big data um, is being used, but also like when it comes to advertising, when it comes to, let, let's say, government outcomes, you know, uh, big data, we're talking about understanding consumer uh, behavior. We might even be talking about screening for individuals at airport security checkpoints and things like that. And when you have that many data points and you're just looking for random patterns in the noise, like it could actually negatively impact people's lives in yeah. a major way. In, and that's sure. really important. In any applied science, it's more yeah. direct. But even in any yeah. science, it may be more of an indirect effect, but it still is affecting our world, you know. And Steve, don't you think too, I mean, you know, we talk about making these kinds of changes, things like doing internal reproducibility before you publish, for example. But what if, you know... I, I'm looking at this from a from a perspective of a graduate student who, when we publish our dissertation, we're required to have certain people on our committee, one of whom, at least at my university, needs to be a methodology expert. And that mm-hmm. person has to know what they're doing with that methodology. And they should probably be a statistics professor or somebody who, who really does this stuff every day, all day for a living. But that's not really required or expected on most papers, even mm-hmm. though multiple authors are on most papers. What if it became the norm that somebody who has expertise in statistics was always publishing? I know it's a given. We're supposed to be like, but we all have expertise in this area. That's how we got our PhDs. But we don't. Let's be honest. No, it's true. There's there's a range of expertise. Mm-hmm. Uh, at big institutions like at Yale, you could mm-hmm. simply consult a statistician. They're like – 
they man a desk literally where you can make an appointment and say, hey, yeah, or just <laughs> they have walk-in hours where you could say, hey, mm-hmm. am I doing the right statistical analysis here, right? So if you're ha- at a big institution, you, you have that – that support is there. Not everybody necessarily avails themselves of that, but they should. And it really should be built into the process. Like it's like, yeah. oh, you, you didn't consult a statistician? Well, what the hell are you doing? You know, it should be – Or like it, a statistician isn't one of your authors on this paper. Like they weren't there from the beginning to the end because even – what if you chose to consult them about one step that you were feeling a little weak about. But then other steps, as we referenced that study recently, right, that like um, more than 50 percent of researchers uh, use questionable practices. Mm-hmm. But most yeah. of the time it's naive. They don't even know they're doing it. Right. They don't know they're doing it. But clearly <laughs> yeah. they don't have the expertise to realize yeah. that that's not supposed to do that. They're p-hacking even <laughs> if they don't realize it. So you're right. It, it, this Maybe the culture has to change as well to make it more systematic. Mm-hmm. Um, this is kind of like the checklist thing where you know, traditionally academia and medicine dealt with the complexity of what we do by training really hard, you know, the, ment- the mentorship model and training. Yeah. Now we're saying, you know what? Things are kind of important and you don't want individuals to screw up. We probably should just build in a checklist mm-hmm. to make sure that like you don't cut off the wrong leg, you know, rather than just, <laughs> yeah. and, and it really works. It minimizes error. And maybe we need this sort of minim, error minimization methodology built into, you know, academia to, to minimize the, the problems with publishing. It clearly is an issue if you look at it statistically, but it would, it would mean a major culture change. All right. Before we move on to our AAAS show, Jay, what's happening on April 26th? We are doing a, a show with George Robb. It's called The No Show. And The No Show is – now, you got to show up. You can't yeah, buy so tickets you, and then not – Right. Don't blow then, us off. And No don't Show. Don't No Show, yeah. The No Show. It's K-N-O-W. Oh, uh, got it. God, that makes sense. Yes. It's a knowledge-based event. So we're doing something <laughs> – we're doing an all-day event and we're inviting this, right? you – This is going to be in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. This is going to be a fun day. Now, check this out. We, it's going to be an all-day event. The first thing that we're going to do is we're going to we're going to do a bit of role play. We I'll are stop right do, there. Show up. That's all you need to know. Live action role play. Role play. That's it's it. going to be a science based live action role play with oh the SGU gosh. and George and Kara. Right, Kara. Okay. Will I enjoy it? Are oh, you yeah. kidding me? Irrelevant. You, oh, you're yeah. gonna you're gonna <laughs> the Pope love it so Come much. On. You're gonna want to move to the to the, this side of the world and play with us every day. Now, here's what's going to happen. We do live on this side of the world. The best way that I can describe <laughs> it for people who don't know what what live action role play is, it's going to be like host a murder. You're going to be given a, a character, and you're going to have a little bit of information. You got to remember, like the background, like why you're there, what's the circumstance. It'll be very 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 tight. It won't be a lot. It'll of be easy, and then. You're going to have to figure out what the puzzle is, what is what is happening, and and things are going to happen, and you're going to have to react to them as your character, and it's going to be a lot of fun. Now, if you want to come and you don't want to interact, you just want to watch, that's perfectly fine. You can get involved as much or as little as you want. You could start doing it, and you're like, ah, eh, this isn't for me, or you could start doing nothing and then be like, wow, I love this, and I want to go in full bore. That's fine. Whatever you want to do, um, but it'll be a very interesting and, and a, a very new experience. And the more people that do it, the better. It'd be really a lot of fun if we can get many people involved. That'll probably mm-hmm. be the very first thing that we do. Then the next thing that's going to happen is um, we're going to be doing a live recording of the SGU with audience participation. 
And the next thing will be that George is going to put on a, a concert. Typically, when George puts on a concert, it's him and his acoustic guitar. I'm not sure if George had any other plans at this point. We'll figure all that out very or soon. Or his accordion. Sometimes he likes to use his accordion. That's true. Oh, uh, yeah. And, and, and then Jay then, plays the spoons. Yeah, there's a lot of weird <laughs> stuff. Steve likes to play the drums. Sometimes he'll hit some plastic cups together. It's it's cool. It's jiving. Whatever makes a noise. It's a drum circle. So we uh, we uh, will finish the night off, probably starting somewhere around 7 or 8 p.m. with a skeptical extravaganza. Now, if you don't know what the extravaganza is, the extravaganza is a science-based variety show where we put on different bits in front of the audience you know, the, typically this is just very humorous, like lots of weird things happen. We do this thing. I'll give you as an example. It's called freeze frame where one of us has to go and put headphones on. George will tell us what the name of, say, the movie is. And then we have to arrange ourselves and freeze in position to describe visually what the the title of the movie is. And then whoever it is, let's say Bob had the headphones on, Bob will turn around, see the position that we're in, and now he has to think out loud and say what's going on. And I'm telling you that this is insane. The, the t- every it's time hilarious. we do it, yeah, it's just crazy because the activity of the people arranging themselves is funny because everyone's kind of like, you know, we've only, we're only given 60 seconds to come up with it, so it's kind of frantic. And then the person takes the headphones off and they, they usually start with, what the hell am I looking at? Like they only have no idea. So it's a lot of fun and we do a lot of different bits like that. There is a science and critical thinking theme to the whole thing, so you'll probably be familiar with a lot of the stuff or topics that you see. The other cool thing that we do is we do the SGU versus the rest of you, which means that the SGU is – playing against the audience in a trivia contest. Uh, All five of us get to consult with each other while you are playing as an individual in the audience, and you just try to beat us. And and we've gotten it down. I can't remember. We're not 100% sure. I think one or two people have won this over the years. But it's very hard. It's a lot of fun. And if you're one of the last five people standing, you come up on stage and we make fun of you and it's great. Yeah. <laughs> and you may win a fabulous prize. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh, we typically yeah. give you some swagger. So, you know, you get definitely get something if you get that far. Yeah. So please, uh, we really consider coming. Uh, save the date. We will have the event bright up soon. I just wanted to tell you guys what's happening with a little more details this time. So if you're in the area, if you're within driving distance, please come. It's going to be a great time all day. There's going to be lots of, you know, like I was I was telling Kara, you never know what's going to happen. You know, someone might come running in and an explosion. Can, you just don't know. Anything can happen. <laughs> right. Friday, April 26th in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. All day. Save the date. Early afternoon yep. to the night, late at night. Then, oh, late. Yeah. Then that night, Steve and George are just going to get drunk. Yeah. That's not going to happen. First time ever. <laughs> okay. You could imagine that happening, but it's not going to happen. Yeah, we'll have time in, for the first time in thirteen point seven three billion years. Steve and George. Will be <laughs> yeah. Drunk. All right. So save the date. We'll give you the details next week. Feel free to email us with any questions you have at info at theskepticsguide.org. We're all looking forward to it. All right, we're going to go on now with the show that we recorded at the AAAS. It's a lot of fun. Science or fiction was especially good. And then, but we will be back <laughs> after the show, after the AAAS show, to do some closing segments and some follow up as well. So we'll see you back. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, the Great Courses Plus. With the Great Courses Plus, you can learn about virtually 
anything you're interested in. I mean, we're talking human behavior, ancient history, philosophy, politics, language, and of course, what do we love the most is science. Mm -hmm. Um, There's so much reliable, fact-based information. It's presented in a really engaging way by experts who aren't just knowledgeable, they're also really passionate. So you can't help but learn. There are thousands of lectures to explore with The Great Courses Plus, and you can watch or listen all on your own schedule. Right now, we're listening to Introduction to Astrophysics by Professor Joshua Wynn. This is a cool overview of a lot of astronomy and cosmology stuff that we talk about. He zooms all the way into fundamental particles, then takes you out to distant galaxies, talks about tidal forces, black holes, photons and particles, all kinds of stuff, why stars shine, good basic stuff like that. So we really recommend this course. It is a great, as it says, introduction to astrophysics. And right now you can sample The Great Courses Plus for free with unlimited access to learn about anything. We want you to start your free trial now only at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash skeptics. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash skeptics. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Saturday, February 16th, 2019, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Kara Santamaria. Howdy. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Hello, everyone. So there's definitely a vibe of science in the air. I'm feeling a lot of science while we're here. We're at the AAAS. Uh, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And it's just great walking around, talking to a bunch of scientists about what they're doing. Everyone is so enthusiastic. There's I'm just happy community. you remembered what that initialism stands for. Yes, thank you. <laughs> um, and it's always great to see a standing room only crowd. <laughs> of course, we have 10 chairs. They added one, yeah. That's we great. can go home and say, we filled the joint. <laughs> we totally <laughs> rocked the joint. So um, this is the first time we're speaking at the AAAS, and I think this is the first time they've had podcast, live podcasting at the AAAS, and we've been trying to sort of break scientific skepticism into this conference for a couple of years now. So I thought we'd take our first opportunity to do sort of a primer on what is scientific skepticism. What is it that we do? Uh, we've been doing this for over 20 years. Our, our podcast is 14 years old in May, right? May 5th will be our 14th year. This is episode 711, so there's a huge back catalog if you haven't, haven't heard any episodes. Um, so what we do is science communication, but with a special sauce, right? We have a, a twist that we do on what we do, because we think it's critically important to communicate science to the public with critical thinking. And the evidence shows that this is, in fact, is the case. If you are trying to change people's minds, right? So this is now outreach to the public. Obviously, scientists are probably pretty on board with the whole science paradigm. <laughs> but even there, you know, scientists have their sacred cows. So I know plenty of scientists who believe wacky shit, you know. <laughs> but what we want to do is teach, make the public more rational, more reasonable, and more scientific, right, in how they think about the world, how they form their opinions, how they decide what to believe. And you can't really accomplish that goal entirely by giving them facts, right? That's sort of the 30-year-old Carl Sagan who was awesome, but that was kind of in the 1980s, the prevailing idea was what we call the information deficit model. That people believe pseudoscience, this is what 
Carl Sagan actually said this exact quote. People believe pseudoscience in exact proportion to how to their ignorance of science. Are you calling Sagan a liar? What, what well, that was, <laughs> said, that was that was incomplete. It was that was a prevailing idea at the time. It, it turns out though that we we've been researching that very question. John Cook, 2017. Yeah. Right? <laughs> it's wrong. That that statement by Carl Sagan we now know is wrong. In fact, the more science education people have, the more pseudoscience they believe. Right until you get to I'm a working scientist level of science, and then only in your field of expertise, right? So unless you're working and you have an area of expertise where you're a working scientist, there's actually the more science you know, the more willing you are to actually accept things that the experts would consider pseudoscience, which is paradoxical, right? So something else must be going on. Right, Kara, you, you deal a lot with this as well. The science of science communication. How do we actually change minds? Yeah, and I think that it's really cool to see how much of an increase in those conversations are happening in these academic conferences. And it's really been happening over the last several years. I think that a lot of young scientists, a lot of early career scientists, but even a lot of scientists who have been working for several years are embracing what it means to go out and do SciComm. Because there was a fight I mean, there's still a fight in some labs, but there was definitely a fight early on for people to um, have the support of their home institutions to be able to do this. And, and I think some of you are probably nodding on the inside right now. So whenever I give talks about science communication, I always give kind of like the five um, how-tos, you know, the, 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 five, the top five SciComm tricks. Um, the first one that I always like to talk about is how important it is to know your audience. This is something very important. This is something we, we, you know, focus on on the SGU. Obviously, we've been around a long time. I can't take credit for that because I've only... How long have I been with the SGU now? Since 2015. Yeah, four years. Four years, four yeah. years. Um, and, but they've been doing this for 14, yeah. as you said, which is amazing. So, so Kara, would you want the audience to fill out, like, a detailed biography so we can collect that data on them? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yes, that's what we need. No, we don't need to know everything about every single person, but it is super important when you're talking about science to understand, are you speaking to a faith community? Are you speaking to a community of children? Are you talking to people who already have buy-in? Are you having to convince them of very simple things um, before you can get into these deeper things? So number one... Even on a more general level, though... mm -hmm. Just knowing how human beings operate well, yes. is critical. Like, know your audience could also mean like what we call the neuropsychological humility model, right? So it, you can't really change people's minds until you know why they believe what they believe in the first place. And people believe, uh, like, why do people deny the scientific consensus on global warming? That's a burning question. We really want to know the answer to that question because... Something like 40% or so of the public... American public. American, yeah. There's definitely a culture. That's also knowing the culture goes along with that as well. Like if you're having this talk in South Korea, it might be a little bit different. But they, they don't accept the consensus opinion. And, you know, we need to know why that is. But more importantly, we want to know, well, how can we bring them over into, you know, understanding what the consensus is and accepting the consensus. And just giving them facts doesn't work. In fact... There's something called uh, the, um, the the backfire effect, which itself is controversial. So this is like again, like what's the science and pseudoscience of the backfire effect? 
So the idea is that if you tell somebody, if I give a global warming denier information about global warming, some studies show that they dig in their heels and they actually increase their denial of global warming. That's the backfire effect. It's not just rejecting the change. It's actually believing the pseudoscience or rejecting the science even more. But that turns out that that effect is really hard to replicate, probably because it only occurs with the highest level of emotional and ideological buy-in to the the narrative, to what people believe. But for most things, there probably isn't a backfire effect, but there is a resistance to change. So the next one is, never underestimate the intelligence of your audience, but always underestimate their vocabulary. And I think that this is something that's really important as somebody who's worked for a very long time in science communication in popular media. I've worked for years on television communicating science, as well as in podcasts um, on you know different outlets like National Geographic. And one thing that I always struggle with in the media landscape is that there's a real underappreciation for how much the public will understand when you share these important stories. And the truth of the matter is, the things that we do in science are not so complex that people can't understand them. But the way we talk about them is like Greek. And so it's very important. And this applies in any field, right? If your plumber is trying to explain to you what's wrong with your toilet, you're just going to be like mouth-breathing, staring at him, because you don't know his lingo. And it's the same thing when a scientist or a physician, right? Physicians are much better at this, because they interface with the public quite a lot. This is every day. Um, Number three... It's not about what to think, it's about how to think. And that really speaks back, um, goes back to these conversations about neuropsychological humility, about confirmation bias, basically social psychology. Well, you're throwing a lot of jargon out of there. You want to... Yeah, these people already know what this means. <laughs> I think they do. Um, I know, but we only have an hour, so I will get to certain things. Well, let me get, let me, let me come back to that. Um, number four, be yourself. If you're not genuine, people will immediately disengage. And this is something that I think a lot of people who have um, classroom experience, maybe people here who are professors, and have tried to um, affect change with their students notice that if you're not yourself, they're not going to buy it. And then the last one, which doubles back to the first one, which is know your audience, is meet people where they are. And I think that really does recapitulate some of the points that you were making, is that if somebody doesn't believe that the Earth is older than 6,000 years you're going to have a hard time communicating certain concepts to them. But if you can find common ground and you can work within their frame of reference, it's going to be much easier for you to be able to have these conversations. And you may not change their mind right away. You may not change their mind at all. But there is a lot of really good social psychology research. There's a whole field. It's called marketing. And we've learned a lot about how to reach people through marketing. It's something that we as scientists, I think, can work a little bit better with those social psychologists and those marketers. And the last one, this is my bonus. And this is probably the most important for most of the people in this room right now, is stop trying to sound so goddamn smart. Because it really, honestly, is not a way to engage with people. It's probably the easiest way to push people away. And it's something that I find every day when I interview scientists that they struggle with. Because the accolades and the jargon are what make me seem official. Right. Right? They're the things that give me weight in my conversation. And they're the things that make it so that I have public trust. But at the same time, they're the things that keep you very, very distant from the people that you're talking to. And they're the things that keep those people from really being able to empathize with you and vice versa. Right. So part of what we do is engage with the public on things they're interested in 
whether or not it's real or good science, right? So the, the, always the classic iconic example of that is Bigfoot, right? And sometimes people call us Bigfoot skeptics, right? Because who cares if you know, Bigfoot obviously is pseudoscience. There's no ape you know, roaming the Northwest. So why even bother examining the evidence and you know, trying to debunk what people are saying? And the point is that if I can explain to somebody how we know that Bigfoot probably doesn't exist, I'm explaining to them pretty much all of science and skepticism and critical thinking and all the basic principles are there. They're all there. It, it really seems old school to talk about it Bigfoot. It does. And we don't we talk about it that much. Like a quarter I mean, century ago, but yeah. it really is a microcosm for scientific skepticism. It's it, really all there. And it, it is actually relevant still because we all know who David Attenborough is, I would, I would hope, among this group. Well, look it up online. You can hear him say in interviews, I have no reason to believe why there couldn't be evidence for Bigfoot or Yeti. I mean, I mean this, is, this is David Attenborough saying this. Yeah. Jane Goodall, too. The other issue, too, is that eventually Bigfoot will come around again. <laughs> well, though, like astrology yeah. is, is exactly. on the rise. And who would have thought the flat earther thing was going to be a thing in 2019? But, and don't fall for the, uh, this idea that they're not serious. They really think the world is flat. And also, don't fall for the idea that, oh, I could talk them out of that in five minutes. No, We've, I've tried. That, that's not going to happen. <laughs> that's not going to happen. had actual conversations with actual flat earthers. And so, again, so part of what we do is to try to understand pathological belief, right? Like, I'm a physician, so I like to make a lot of medical analogies. It's like when we see a patient who has an end stage, like a really advanced case of a disease, we're like, oh, we call in all the medical students to look at it. Because when you look at the end stage of an advanced disease, you can really see all the features very prominently and very dramatically. And the hope is they're probably never going to see a case like that again in their life. But what we want them to do is have a better understanding of the more subtle early signs of the disease. So by understanding how somebody could get into a mental place where they think the world is freaking flat, then I can understand why, like, p-hacking is such a common thing and why people might deny, like, think, be hesitant about vaccines or, you know, be hesitant about GMOs. Like, people have a hard time understanding the, the consensus on the safety of GMOs, for example. They get really confused about the implications of that technology. Steve. It's all the same thing, really. Would you say that Deepak Chopra is in the end-stage pseudoscience <laughs> disease? He's stage five. See, maybe, see, maybe we need to look at it like it's actually a disease. Well, that's a, one model. It's yeah, we, and we treat people model. with science. Yeah. But, but, <laughs> and critical thinking. And so that comes back, right, to this conversation about the knowledge deficit. And it's something that, you know, we've been rehashing now in the science of science communication field and in social psychology for decades. But we're just starting to see more and more conversations within general psychom. Right. Um, uh, within general science is that just giving more facts to somebody who cognitively is not interested in hearing those facts or for whom those facts are disconnecting from their social frame is not going to be effective. And so a big part of the SciComm side of this is understanding a word that may not be popular in a room full of scientists constructivism. Ooh, postmodernism. It's such a bad word. But really what it comes down to is understanding that people construct their own reality based on all sorts of things, based on history, based on the things that we've read, based on the things that we discover, based on our training, based on our lack of training. And if we go in assuming that our individual perspective, our individual view of reality 
is in concert with everybody else's, we're never going to be effective communicators. That gets to the first find your common ground, right? So like if I'm you know, literally facing off against somebody who whatever believes astrology, denies GMOs, or thinks vaccines are horrible, or the earth is flat, the first thing I have to figure out is where's the common ground? What do, what do they believe in, or what do they not believe in, and why? And maybe they're a conspiracy theorist, for example, and you have to understand conspiracy thinking as a phenomenon because, yeah, like, flat eartherism is really about the conspiracy, right? The conspiracy is a feature, not a bug, of the reason why they believe in, in the flat earth. It's, it gets them to a place they want to be. And so if you understand that, then you might understand a little bit more what, how that could play into more subtle things and, and what are the cognitive traps they're falling into they are, for example, dismissing negative evidence, right, as part of the conspiracy or any evidence for an alternate theory. Well, that's obviously a false flag operation. Yeah. And so they've immunized their position against refutation. And you might think, oh, yeah, of course, that's obvious. But I see scientists doing that all the time. Oh, the, the study of their drug that they thought was going to work was negative. We didn't use a high enough dose. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe, but mm -hmm. you could say that about any study. <laughs> but we didn't, we didn't, the, the treatment duration wasn't long enough. Okay, maybe this is my favorite. Maybe there's a subgroup in which it works. Yeah. Right? So these are things that scientists say, and those are what we call arguments from ignorance, right? Mm -hmm. Or it's just ad hoc reasoning. Mm -hmm. We're really good at inventing reasons to explain the evidence or explain or rationalize the evidence. And in fact, and this has been shown too, the smarter you are, mm -hmm. the better you are at rationalizing it. So it's actually harder to convince somebody who's really smart and well-educated but who has fallen down a cognitive trap, a conspiracy theory or whatever. It's harder to dig them out of that because, man, they have a lot of shields. They will deflect your evidence expertly mm -hmm. and they know enough to be really dangerous. Right? So you, but then you have to get down to the philosophy of science and... And also things like how we construct our image of reality and our memories, you know, it's a constructive process, it's not a passive process. Yeah. So this is where, again, we, we've thrown out the phrase neuropsychological humility a couple of times. What that basically means is we all have to understand that as human beings, we are subject to a number of cognitive flaws and biases. We use heuristics in order to have sh mental shortcuts to understand the world. I teach my students this all the time. And they make a, a, a diagnosis that I think is very unlikely. But, but heuristics aren't all bad, though. No, no, they're a shortcut. So it's, it's okay as a first approximation, but don't confuse it for reality. So they might think, oh, this patient has all the features of this really rare disease. That's what I think they have. Like, that's the representativeness heuristic. You're, you're confusing how representative it is with the prior probability. And, in fact, the fact that it's a rare disease means it's very unlikely to be that it's actually more likely to be a diagnosis that's not very typical, but is very, very common. And that's totally counterintuitive. Could you classify a human's sense of what their gut is telling them as a heuristic? Yeah, yes. So that's well, they all, use heuristics sure. in it's, order to do that. It's par all part of system two thinking. So you have the analytical thinking, which is a slow thought process where you analyze evidence and logic. And then there is, the, this is the thinking fast, thinking slow, Kahneman's, Kahneman's book. And then the thinking fast is your gut reaction. How do you feel about it immediately? And those feelings are actually a lot of information. You shouldn't ignore them. But, you, but that's, they're rife with biases, right? That's just your immediate bias about something. Or your heuristic that, that you're not even aware that you're using. Yeah, those are the things that help us survive. Yeah. And, and what we're talking about is a layer above that that helps us use logic and reason. Right, so science is actually an analytical layer on top of how we understand the world, right? Our intuitions were hard. You know, we thought the Earth was at the center of the universe, right? 
and that gases had negative gravity, whatever. All our intuitions were all wrong about thinking about how the universe works. We had to figure it out by, by system one analytical thinking, and science is essentially just a very formalized, institutionalized method of that. And then we try to understand, well, okay, how do we apply that in everyday life? And with the knowledge of how people deceive themselves, right? So when people say things like, I clearly remember this. And, of course, we all laugh because, no, you don't. (laughs) Nobody clearly remembers anything. You have a constructed memory that has been reconstructed over and over again. And it's so, and easy, it's so easy to think that what you see and what you remember yeah. is, like a, is like technology, a recorder, a video camera. Yeah, that, brains are that's not something YouTube that's, videos. They're not. It, it, it really is. And what, I think that's one of the biggest struggles about being a good scientific skeptic is realizing that, that everything you experience, is con- your brain is constructing this reality for you, and it's, pr- it's error-prone. Sure, it's, it's, ac- it's, fa- it's accurate enough most of the time, but it fails quite often, and it can fail in, in very critical times. And that's what you need to appreciate right. is, is the self-deceptive nature of how your brain just so, works. Bob, so even when you're experiencing something for the first time, your, your biases are changing that infor- like changing what reality is as your senses get interpreted. Absolutely. Right. And so, this is so, what social psychologists and, and marketers use to their advantage all the time. And this is something that more and more within the science of science communication, we need to co-opt and we need to understand these shortcomings and use them to our advantage when we're communicating science. A good example, and don't forget, a lot of times people think that, oh, an expert saw this, this person is an expert, but there is no expert human. Every, every <laughs> human, every human is, is, is subject to this. And one great example I've come across was these pilots walking to a plane and they see a UFO. They see this UFO behaving in a way that physics, I mean, or, or modern aircraft should not behave. 90 degree turns, amazing velocities, and they were just entranced by this UFO. And if they had walked onto the plane at that moment, they would have a great UFO story. Like, we saw this UFO one day. Uh, but they, they kept watching it, and at one point, it, um, they went low, this thing went low on the horizon and passed not behind the trees, but in front of the trees. Oops. And that's when they realized, wait, <laughs> yeah. this thing is 200 feet away. It's not, it was a blade of grass. Miles, right, yeah. Yeah. floating piece of flotsam or jetsam, whatever it was. <laughs> and they're like, oh, my God. And that, and that leads you to things about you know, size and distance, constancy. This thing was, was closer, so yeah. they assumed it was farther, so they thought it was moving really, really fast. But no, it was moving kind of Astronauts slow. have similar stories. Yes. Uh, same thing. That's why my next favorite phrase after I clearly remember is, I know what I saw. No, you don't. You don't know what you saw. You really don't. Your brain constructed a first approximation of what it thought it saw and replete with every bias that you could imagine. And then it immediately becomes a constructed memory. And literally, your brain says, oh, I think that might be this. So let me make it look like that. And and then that's what you see. That's that's a very uncomfortable thought when when you start thinking more about that. It's very uncomfortable. Well, it it gives you humility. But also, uh, don't forget, once the memory is consolidated into long-term memory, the story doesn't end there. I mean, every time you recall that memory, you can change it a little bit. You update it. Or you update it. You talk about it with people. It changes. So after five, ten years, that memory may have... You know, not even close to what really happened. I mean, look at like JFK stories are yeah. famous for that. Oh, and, and, and they're totally shaped by cultural expectations. So the thing, the stories become way more interesting over time. They, you know, serve the purpose that they originally didn't serve, and they become something very different. I mean, this is how we get false confessions. Right. This is right. how you know we have so many phenomena. Look at, so uh, somebody was interviewed after JFK was assassinated in '63. 
and they have her on tape. They videotaped her describing what she saw. And then five years later at the 50th. Well, her initial testimony was, I didn't see anything. And then right. you could see, yeah, over, over the decades, years, it morphed into there was a shooter in the grassy knoll. I yeah, mean, there was an amazing right. evolution of her memory. And if you asked her, you can't blame her for this. You, she really she's not lying. Something. She really believes this. She really remembers. Uh, she got to the point where she was saying she was running after the she shooter. Was running after the shooter. Yeah. So she went from I saw nothing to I'm you know, literally in, tapping right. the guy on his shoulder, the running behind yeah. him. Yeah, it's amazing. All right, I want to I want to ask a quick question because there's a lot of scientists in the audience. How many people here know what the term p hacking refers? to raise your hand most that's really good a few years ago most that the answer probably would have been almost none so that's another example of you know how this is relevant to like every day and even at the highest levels you know if you actually do surveys 60 percent of working scientists admit to behaviors that amount to p-hacking where is it essentially doing questionable research practices that involve things like deciding when to stop collecting data, you know, after you look at the results, you're not supposed to do that. Changing or, the hypothesis. Yeah, going back to, oh, yeah, changing the hypothesis. <laughs> Oops. Um, That's my or does that doing three different kinds of, of statistical analysis and look, choosing the one that looks good, that makes the graph look more compelling. Does that include cherry-picking data? Yeah, but yes. That's a little more blatant. Right, but that's because that's the the low-hanging fruit, so to speak. uh, But p-hacking is often slightly more subtle than that. I mean, the biggest thing is basically doing, forgetting to do an effect size analysis or maybe doing one and forgetting that you did it and then continuing to collect data until you find a significant result, which you should never do. You should know how many... How big your N is in advance. Right, or including original observations in your follow-up study. Can't do that either. Um, but the public does p-hacking of reality, too, meaning that they kind of cheat in how they evaluate information. When, it, when it's not in the context of a scientific study, we call that confirmation bias, right? How many people have heard that term, confirmation bias? Not yeah. quite as many, but, but maybe half. So confirmation bias is what we all do all the time in that our, we're overloaded with information, right? Your, your brain is filtering a ton of information about the world around you. And what, are, what we do is, in the background, we are sifting that information looking for patterns. And we're looking for things that confirm what we already believe or and or what we want to believe. Sometimes we kind of grudgingly think that, yeah, this is true, but we want to believe something else. And as soon as we encounter evidence for the thing we want to believe, oh, we readily accept that. We don't challenge it. We incorporate that into our worldview. And we think there's powerful evidence to support my conclusion. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we are filtering out all the negative evidence, all the disconfirming evidence. We are rationalizing away things that don't fit our narrative. We are explaining it away. And then at the end, we have uh, what researchers have called like Dunning of Dunning-Kruger effect, another thing you may or may not have heard of. A powerful illusion of knowledge, but it's not actual knowledge. And that's what we're confronting. When somebody says, no, GMOs are going to kill you, that's probably somebody who has a powerful illusion that they know what they're talking about. But they don't. And now this Dunning-Kruger effect, how many people have heard of that one? Even fewer. One of the most cited studies of all time. That's true, it is. So basically, (laughs) the the idea is they they basically tested a bunch of people. They said, here's a test of whatever knowledge. How do you think you did on that test? And how knowledgeable are you in general about this? And then they graphed that against their actual numerical score on the test. And... Um, the worse people did, the worse they, guard, they graded themselves. Most, a lot of people mischaracterized the study. 
But the difference got bigger. The, below the 75th percentile, the worse you did, the more you overestimated your performance. And everybody thought they were above average. So even if you were in the 10th percentile, you thought you were in the 55th percentile, right? Nobody thought they were below 55. Um, so why is that, and how do we counteract that? So that's, that's the $64,000 question. Dunning wrote a follow-up paper where he said, it's, it's, this is the powerful illusion of knowledge thing, uh, but also that they lack the, the knowledge, the metacognitive ability, the cognitive uh, knowledge and awareness to evaluate their own knowledge and their own competence. And so they, they, the more incompetent they are, the more they overestimate their own knowledge or underestimate their own ignorance. And they're also, I think, underestimating the knowledge that exists in that field. Yeah, because they're not competent enough to know how incompetent they are. Basically. That's what it really comes right. down to. So, but the thing is, again, initially when you hear about that, yeah, other people are dumb, right? We you want to think, we all, we all, we all It's everybody this. else. It's never me, yeah. right? It feels that we don't now. have expertise Yeah, in. we are all on different parts of the Dunning-Kruger curve for different areas of knowledge. This is not about some people. This is about everybody. And so even if you are an expert astrophysicist, when you're talking about geology, you may be way down at the bottom of that Dunning-Kruger curve, but you think, I'm a scientist, so I know more than the average person. Maybe you don't, right? So, and in fact, there is... What we call the Nobel Prize phenomenon, Linus where Pauling, right? you know, Linus Pauling, Linus where people basically because they're an expert in one thing, they way overestimate their knowledge in general, and <laughs> that sets them up for being cranks. Right now, they believe like there's the uh, the Nobel laureate who's an HIV denier who thinks that HIV does not cause AIDS, and but he's a Nobel laureate. You know, and you think how could somebody like that fall for a pseudoscience because he's way overestimating his knowledge in a specific area in which he's not an expert. James Randi did an experiment. Yeah. where he, he taught two young uh, boys. I don't know. They, they were probably t- you know, mid-teens at the mm-hmm. time. In 1920, yeah. Yep. Um, he taught them to do some magic tricks. And he had so them... So Banachek was in Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. Banachek. Yeah, Steve yeah. Shaw. Yeah. So you know, the, the quick story is that he had them be tested by two... Was it, they were physicists. Correct? No, they were psychologists. They were psychologists. Yeah, Targan put off. And, and they, they were these just kids that he said, okay, here, I'm going to a 15-minute seminar on how to do magic tricks. They were able to fool these psychologists for months. And they were also instructed to say, if they ever ask you if you're, if you're doing magic tricks, Admit say it. yes. Yep. And they were never asked. <laughs> so they thought they were psychic? They thought they were psychic. Wow. And if you see the tricks, you can see this on YouTube. Yeah. If you see the tricks they were doing, they were ridiculous. So we like, know they're ridiculous. Yeah, but wait. But <laughs> even the other one done, where you can take a matchbox and you can pinch your skin oh, yeah, with it, and, and if you tighten it. the skin on your hand, the matchbox will stand up. They thought they bought that trick. Yeah, but Jay, you told them how it was done while you were explaining to them. <laughs> if you just showed it to them, they would be impressed too. I'm telling you. Or, or they, they do the thing where they bend a key with their mind, and it's really impressive until you realize that they're just bending the key opportunistically on sleight of hand when they get a chance. And when you know how they do it, it's all, every magic trick is right. ridiculous. Right. When you know how it's done, it's yeah. always far simpler oh, yeah. than you think it is. In fact, part of the magic trick is convincing the audience that the way they're doing it is really complicated. Because if you think this is really a high level of skill and complexity, you won't figure out that it's really easy and stupid. <laughs> right? That's part of the mystique of the magic trick. And that's, so yeah, that showed like, these kids who were given, the, they do this quick, easy magic trick, food, fooled psychologists, but partly because they wanted to believe in. Well, in but psych- like, you know, let's give, some, let's give magic and people that perform magic some 
cred. Now, well, I'm, not, I'm not saying first of all, they, there's no skill in to order to develop a, a good trick that can fool people. They have to do a ton of work to yeah. get there. Maybe the, the the actual pulling off of the magic trick ends up being something simple, but it's, it takes Sometimes. an enormous amount of effort. Well, so, and so it's and like even if you go in, if you go in thinking, all right, this is simple, you still are not going to figure it out most of the time, right? It's still right. impressive because you can't figure it out. So it's it's like hacking, right? It's not all computer code, right? It's some part of it is what we call social engineering. And so magic is the same way. Part of it is, is sleight of hand, is, is prestidigitation, is, is, is skill, misdirection, all that. Part of it, is, a lot of it is social engineering. And in fact, there's a, there's a good book, Sleight of Mind, where no, neuroscientists you know, it essentially worked with magicians to reverse engineer neurologically their magic tricks. Because magicians evolved their magic over hundreds of years of trial and error. But they don't know why they work neurologically. And so the neurologists were trying to figure out why they work from a neuroprocessing point of view. And they came up with a lot of really interesting yeah, things. Yeah, it turns out they said magic is real. Yeah. So, so, Steve, one of the things that we've been talking about a lot is um, confirmation bias. Yes. And we've been talking about neuropsychological humility. But I think another term that we've all heard before, but that's so important when it comes to communicating science, is cognitive dissonance. Yeah. Yes. There's this... this concept or this um, phenomenon in which it's very, very uncomfortable. It's very hard to be wrong. And when you're faced with disconfirming evidence, it takes people more than one time. It often can take them years to start to change their mind about things. Because if most of the things that you believe are in contradiction with this new piece of evidence, you can't hold on to that cognitive dissonance. It's so psychologically uncomfortable. You have to care more about the process than whether or not you were right at any particular given time or any particular conclusion. But that's something you have to learn because we're not not born that way. Why are you to to think that way? All right. One question. I have one one, one interesting point. The next time you're cruising social media, could be Facebook, could be Reddit or whatever. Cruising, he says. Yeah. <laughs> well, I do that because you know, it's, you know, you're zipping through things, and you're, you know, and what I've noticed, I, I've tried to observe myself doing it, and particularly late at night because I don't want to like get upset about anything mm. when I'm trying to fall asleep, right? And I know I shouldn't be on my cell phone, but everybody's nope. doing it. So <laughs> I'm in bed, and anything that comes, if it's a story about you know people abusing puppies or whatever, I'm like, <laughs> nope, not dealing with that, and I push past the stuff that I don't want to face. Yeah. But I also do it. To science articles that bother me, I, I mm-hmm. like. Oh wow, I don't want to read about that. That pisses me off, or it upsets yeah. me in some way. And you just zip past it. Yeah, so you have to discipline yourself to read the stuff yeah. you don't want to read. Right. Right. And right. you have to put yourself in the headspace of what if I am wrong? What if I'm right. wrong? And you always but have to ask yourself. But like, not right. when you're trying to sleep. Just look at puppies and rainbows. No. <laughs> <laughs> Leave your cell phone in another room, Jay. We've had this conversation. All right. So we have, for those familiar with the show, we have a game that we play in every episode called Science or Fiction. So we're going to play an, uh, a game of science or fiction. We'll have a little bit of audience participation as well. So, uh, this is where I do two, I do three science news items. Two are real, one is fake. Although sometimes I do four items, which is what I'm doing today. So three of these are real, and one is fake. Um, and there's a theme. So it's not just random news items. The theme is myths and misconceptions, right? So these are four things that many people believe which are wrong. Now, three of the things that, as I say them, are going to be correct, 
one of the things is going to be incorrect. So I'm going to be say one thing, whether, whether, whether I'm correcting a wrong myth or whatever, you'll still see. But wait, it's so like it could de- be... Double negative in this. Yeah, no. whatever. But yeah. The, the one that's stated, wrong... One thing is wrong. The one thing that's wrong, you could have made up out of whole cloth. Whatever. Or you've significantly changed There's the original There is something clearly wrong in what I'm saying right. in one of these four statements. Okay. Okay? So pay attention. I'm going to... We'll survey the audience really quick, and then we'll see what the experts have to say. And the point of this is how you reason through... This. Part of it may just be your fund of knowledge, but really the, the interesting thing is how do you reason through whether or not you should believe something or not. Okay, so here's item number one. Isaac Newton was not a true alchemist, alchemist as some claim, but was simply pursuing what passed for the science of chemistry of his day. Item number two, chameleons do not use their color-changing ability for camouflage. Item number three, most diamonds are not made from compressed coal. And item number four, despite being called a gas giant, Jupiter is mostly liquid. So I tried to make sure it was different types of scientists, so there may be some experts in the field, but who cares? <laughs> We're just going to do everyone at once, just to get an idea of who, so which one of those statements do you think is wrong? Is the fiction? And we do this single clap method. So... I'm going to say who thinks the one about Newton is wrong, and then we'll do one clap as I bring my hand down. Let's practice. Ready? Great. Okay. So who thinks the statement about Isaac Newton not really being an alchemist is wrong? Okay. Two people. Who, who thinks that the chameleons not using their color changes for camouflage is wrong? Who thinks that most diamonds not being made from compressed coal is wrong? Okay, and who thinks that the gas giant Jupiter being mostly liquid is wrong? Oh, no. <laughs> wow! You guys are so not helpful. Well, amazing <laughs> distribution. That's a good distribution, and uh, we'll an amazing lack of confidence in the audience. Yeah. Yeah. Those, those were half claps. You can barely hear those claps. All right, can I have this real quick? Yes. All right. This first one here about Isaac Newton, but was simply pursuing what passed for the science of chemistry of his day. That one, I think, is true. I think that, that Isaac Newton was basically doing what other people were doing mm-hmm. when it came to his alchemical aspirations. Alchemical. Yes. Um, the second one about chameleons, if they're not changing color to hide themselves, why the hell are they changing color? Right? I, don't, I mean, it could be for sex. Um, I don't know, but that one I'm not 100% about. Most diamonds are not made from compressed coal. What? How can that possibly not be true? If they're not made of coal, I've been lied to my entire life. That's the idea. Right? And the last one here, despite being called a gas giant, it's the only one I had something fairly intelligent to, to say about. Um, well, sure. I mean, if it, a planet that's that big, if there was anything gaseous, it's going to turn that gas into the liquid form of it. So I think that one is definitely science. Uh, so I'm going to say it's between two and three chameleons. Um, I'm going to say the diamonds one is the fake because okay. I think that you're wrong. Okay. <laughs> Good reason. Uh, Isaac Newton not being a true alchemist, as some claim. Yeah, I've heard that claim before, certainly. D- didn't modern chemistry, or as we know it today, really start in the 1800s more than Newton's time? So I, I-, I have a feeling that that one's going to wind up being correct. Um, chameleons not using their color changing ability to camouflage would it be for temperature control they do a lot a lot of those sorts of things uh, happen with these uh, with these reptiles um, having to do with their uh, regulating their their thermal capacities Um, so I think that one's going to be right most diamonds not made of compressed coal I think that one's actually right 
coal is, is, is grabbed more closer to the surface of the crust of the earth rather than the diamonds are way down there. I mean, like many hundreds of kilometers, I thought, is where they're made. Which Why didn't you tell me, me that before the show? <laughs> you how, didn't how do you know about this? Um, and be, and the, the gas... Okay, here's the one about Jupiter that's bothering me. You're comparing mostly liquid as if you're comparing... How do you compare the gas to liquid and compare those two? Yeah, I'm, not, mass, I'm not quite sure. Volume, yeah, what are we talking it, about here? What does mostly liquid mean? So uh, I'll just say that it's the Jupiter one. I think that one's the fiction. Ah, <sighs> Crap. Okay, Isaac Newton, not a true alchemist, as some claim, but simply pursuing what passed for the science of... Uh, alchemy, uh, the way we think of alchemy is what existed after chemistry happened. Before that, everything was alchemy, right? Like, that's kind of like when we talk about phrenology, that it's like, oh, phrenology pseudoscience. But before we knew Broadman's areas, phrenology helped us understand a lot of neuroscience. Like... Yes, it was disproven, but there were things that came out of it that were important for the day based on what we knew. So I think, I guess I'll go with this one. He was not a true alchemist. He was just a really, really precocious chemist. So you think that's science? That's true. Yeah, yeah science. Right. Right. Despite being called a gas giant, this is the last one, Jupiter is mostly liquid. Again, I, I think it has, doesn't it? There's arguments about it having a solid core. Sure. It's very convenient. So we think there's some solid. We think there's probably, yeah, some liquid, probably some gas. So mostly, hybrid. I don't know. Like it might be most, in terms of no. diameter, oh, yeah, yeah, it yeah. might be more gas. But in terms of volume or mass, it might be more liquid. So I don't know. I'm going to go with that. So the two that are bothering me, most diamonds are not made from compressed coal. I mean, diamonds are made of carbon. But why does it have to be coal? Like there's other sources of carbon. Because in Superman 2, he okay. took it. <laughs> All right. You we saw your, him do it. You can make your dead body into a diamond. I know. Did you know? That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait, 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 I'm not made wait, wait. of coal. Wasn't that Superman 3? Okay. <laughs> um, so chameleons do not use their color-changing ability for camouflage is a very blatant statement. You didn't say solely for camouflage. Not for camouflage. You didn't, yeah. like, they never use it for camouflage, Ever? Of course, they probably don't cognitively know that they're camouflaging themselves, but chameleons do adapt to their surroundings in terms of color. They do not change to a color that's not the color maybe, that maybe they're, they're on. a living mood ring. So at some, and even if they were, some aspect of that is camouflage. At yeah. least some. To say that there's no chameleons never, I just it's called chameleon camouflage. So I don't know. I have to say that one's the fiction. All right. What are you going to say? All right. I'm going to start from the bottom. Despite being called a gas giant, Jupiter is mostly liquid. Oh, God. Bob, you should know this. <laughs> you always get so mad. Bob's the astronaut. Yeah. I'm going to have to say that, that it's a little bit surprising because the, the outskirts of Jupiter, that's where most of the volume is and the gas is. So I would think that, that would be, there would be more, at least by volume. But by weight, maybe it would be surprising. So well, I'm just gonna... it's by every measure. You, it's by weight, okay. by volume, by diameter, by All right. measure. Wow. I think that's a little surprising, but I'm not... Wow. Ready to say that that's fiction. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the diamonds and coal, sure. I mean, sure. It doesn't need to be. Doesn't need to be coal. I buy that as well. Chameleons, yeah. And I think um, Evan might have hit on that one by temperature control. I really don't think that they use it for camouflage. That's a. That's a. Ever? Uh, that's a second. That's not what they're thinking. They're not thinking. I this need to hide say myself. This doesn't what they're thinking. No, I'm, I'm, what, <laughs> what I'm saying is that they do it for one reason, and the camouflage is just some, something that is a byproduct. That is not what why they do it. I'm I'm buying that one. The one that I have a problem. Well, I will with, endorse Kara's interpretation of that statement. Where they it's just not for camouflage. Yeah, at because all. if if that was a secondary product, this would still be this would be right. wrong. They are visually blending into their environment, but it's, they're not using it for camouflage. But that is the definition of camouflage. It's just saying they're not visually blending into their environment. Yeah. 
That's what that's oh. saying. Bob, you're really complicating this. Yeah. You just got to pick one of them. even if it's secondary, it's not their intent. It's not, it's not happening. That's what it's that's just saying. never happening. Put okay. your chip down. Then, then those the, those videos and pictures that I've seen are just like made up pseudoscience, fake news. <laughs> Is that what you're saying? All right. Regardless of any of that, I have a problem with Isaac Newton. Isaac Newton was a guy that spent far much more time dealing with alchemy than than physics. It's surprising if you look at look at here's all of his physics work, and then here's all his al- alchemical work. It's like amazing. Like, why did you waste all of your time? And sure, early alchemy was related to chemistry, just like early phrenology was related to to brain, you know, neuroscience to a certain extent. Um, but I think he was a true alchemist. At least I, he had to believe that he could turn lead into gold. Isn't that? Isn't that that? What's the expression? Yeah, the yeah, that was the holy grail. Right, that was the biggest thing about being an alchemist, and I think he believed that. Wait, we all, all right. gave you different answers. So you guys are all Four over the place, all over the place. and the oh, audience is all over the place as well. Oh my gosh, it's hard, isn't it? You know, at least I picked the one about diamonds. I don't have a beef with Isaac Newton. Bob wants to kick his ass. <laughs> all right, he, all right. <laughs> he was a jerk. I'm just going to lay that down. He was awesome. But if you look how he dealt with people and his friends, he was a bastard. <laughs> I still love him. He's not part of the question, but yeah. <laughs> I'm going to take these in reverse order. Oh, yes. no. It's encouraging. Despite, you guys are all over the place, so I don't have to repoll the audience. Oh, should we yeah. repoll? Do it. All right. Very, very quickly. Newton fiction. Oh, we lost. Oh, we lost. All right, we got one. We got one. Two okay. people. Chameleon's fiction. Diamonds fiction and Jupiter fiction. Okay, not much, but you just just the Newton dropped out. Online people are one in three. Yeah, one in three. Okay, so that's Newton and and diamonds. So, so uh, despite being called a gas giant, Jupiter is mostly liquid. Which one you thought that was the fiction? I thought that was was fiction. That one is science. That one is absolutely science. By any measure, it is mostly... Let me give you some numbers. I got the numbers down here. Jupiter actually has... And we learned a lot from Juno. But, and and there, there's still a lot more to learn, in fact. Fundamental stuff like that? Yes. No? Yeah, because wow. you could model it in so many different ways. So the current model of Jupiter is that it really has a thin atmosphere. Just 124 kilometers of gas. Oh, is that all? And then 12,000 kilometers of liquid molecular hydrogen, and then 45,000 kilometers of liquid metallic hydrogen. Wow. So it's mostly liquid hydrogen. And then beneath that, you have liquid helium, and then you have some kind of core. We're not really sure. Yeah, then then metallic, right? And then you have the rocky core, but we don't don't know really how big it is. It's got to be some core down there, but we don't know how big it is. So, Steve, is the the red eye of Jupiter the storm? That's gas. That's gas. That's on the surface. That's a storm in the atmosphere. Yeah. It's still a big atmosphere, 124 kilometers, but it's tens of thousands of liquid helium. It's just the outer skin of Jupiter, really. Yeah. Yeah, it's just the outer skin. So a couple other cool facts I came across. Because of that, because you have liquid hydrogen is conductive, right? It can conduct electricity. So, and it's fluid. So you have a fluid conductive. It's a, that's why Jupiter has a mass. How big is it, Bob? Biggest, big? biggest in the solar system. It's the biggest thing in the solar system is Jupiter's magnetic field, 450 million miles. Wow. That's and it generates... Bigger than the sun's? Yeah. It's the biggest thing in the solar system. Um, it generates uh, 10 million amps. That one. 10 million amps of electricity. So if we had a station near Jupiter, that plug into that. Yeah, plug yeah. into the magnetic yeah. field of Jupiter. It's a tremendous amount of energy. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. All right. 
most diamonds are not made from compressed coal. Jay, you had a problem with that one. I have a big problem with that Some one. Some people in the audience had a problem with that one. That one is science. What the hell? If Evan hit upon it, most of the diamonds that are mined come from the Mount, mantle, come from stable Mount diamond Mount region Mount in, in the mantle brought up by volcanoes. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that is much deeper than coal. Wait, what? Coal is whatever. Um, so what? Three kilometers? So why? Yeah, a few kilometers, and diamonds are made of about 150 kilometers. So why is everybody wrong? Like, where's the misinformation? It's, it's a myth from? that is just really persistent. It permeates the culture. Heard that. So what's it made out of? It's made out of carbon. It's carbon. Yeah, but not coal. From volcanoes? No, volcanoes bring it up. So it's just there's just deep carbon it's, in the in the mantle. In what form though? How'd it get there? When it gets compressed. We're all. I mean, car- carbon is everywhere. Carbon yeah. it's all we're made of carbon because it's a common element I, I already. I understand that, but I'm just trying to visualize it. What does it look like? Where is it? Is it does like? it look like coal? Maybe. No. <laughs> <laughs> so the other thing is, most diamonds are older than the life that formed coal, right? So it's, most of it's three billion right. years old, and okay. you know. And also, how many allotropes of carbon are there? Yeah. There's a lot. It looks like diamonds, Jay. I'm still not sold on this. It's totally correct. So it's deeper and older than coal. So it can't be from coal. Right. There are three other sources of diamonds, by the way, on Earth. That's right. So subduction zones produce a little bit of diamonds. Very small amount, though. Um, asteroid impacts produce nano diamonds. And cubic zirconia. And <laughs> some diamonds come from space. Like they formed right. somewhere else and they just... No, diamonds like, from heaven. And we, and we make our own. Where it rains diamonds. Maybe. And we make yeah, our own. We make about. our own. Yeah, I remember some planet rains. Uh, not including artificial time. Okay. Number two, chameleons do not use their color-changing ability for Same. camouflage. Say it. Good luck. You think it's, you think that's the fiction? Yeah. And that one is science. They don't use it at all for yeah. camouflage. Still don't so, buy it. No, they Cognitive they, dissonance. They don't. They, What's it about? Their natural color is camouflaged, but when they change their skin color, it's mood ring. Jay's correct. So they are expressing their emotions, and it's a way of communicating their emotions to other chameleons. So maybe the chameleon goes onto a rock and says, I feel like a rock no, right now. It, it, they do not change their color to their surroundings at all. But how have we all seen that There's no relationship to the color of their surroundings. It is not at all related. So... Um, recent studies so first of all there were recent studies where we didn't even really know how they did it they have what are called iridophores iridophores are like nanocrystals in two skin layers Mm -hmm. and they change the arrangement relative to each other of the iridophores and that changes the iridescence the reflection of light and that changes the color it's It's like structural color it's their version of midichlorians no, it's not. <laughs> you can never, say that, never say that word again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but not for camouflage. So cult, the whole chameleonics thing is a misnomer. It's just they don't use I it. I still love that word, though. Yeah, that's sure, what But it's a, chemical, a re- it's a chemical reaction, essentially, which is why it's very, very slow. It's a structural slow. reaction. If you, it's a structural. It's structural. So it's not like, like octopi. Like, so octopuses will... That's, that's based on their brain. Their brain is like... When they're changing. under stress, they tense up, and that changes their skin color, yeah. basically. So like, with an octopus will actually shuttles pigments in and out of their skin cells. Chameleons don't do that. They're just shifting the mirrors in their skin. Right, but, a, but, but an octopus will do it at the speed of, of thought, essentially. Yeah. This is controlled by their, their, their nervous system. It's just as fast as... Slow. It's slow. It's, but it, maybe it's slower than an octopus. Much it's slower. not that. All right. Cool. Which means, say which, it, means say it, which means that Isaac Newton <laughs> was not a true alchemist, as some claim, but was simply pursuing what passed for the science of chemistry of his day is the fiction he absolutely 
was an alchemist, not just doing wow. chemistry that they called alchemy. He wasn't like an astrologer who was doing real observations of the sky. He was a freaking alchemist. Let me explain to you why I can say that. So um, Al- Isaac Newton believed in what was called primal wisdom, right? The idea that when the world was created, and he was a creationist, when the world was created, God imparted this primal wisdom to certain outlets on the world, and his job was to find it, was to find the original understanding of how God made the world. Okay. And that was the pursuit of alchemy. He also absolutely believed in the, in the philosopher's stone. He was actually pursuing... He liked Harry Potter? He wanted to create the philosopher. <laughs> the philosopher's stone was believed by alchemists to be the thing that could transmute one substance into another. Lead to gold. Lead into gold is the classic, but he, he thought that if he figured out the primal wisdom of alchemy, he would have total control over nature, right? Not just turning so he, so he lead into gold. So he wanted to be Thanos. You're saying he wanted to be In Thanos. fact, you know what one of his names for himself was? Because he had all kinds of secret alchemical names for himself. Oh, himself my God. Jehovah Sanctus Unus. Whoa. Which Jehovah. was Jehovah the Holy One. Because he thought that he was going to figure out how God's mind worked and he would have have power over nature. That was alchemy at its essence, at its core, he was an alchemist. He wasn't just doing chemistry and calling it alchemy. He was an alchemist. Right. And the figure that I read was 10% of his writings were on alchemy. 10%. 10% which and he was hitting the head with an apple and that was the end of that. Yeah. But <laughs> he didn't publish. Say that again? He didn't publish. 10%. 10% was a figure that I read recently, but I know I've heard higher numbers <coughs> I've as heard well. that, that it dwarfed anything else he But did. he was well, maybe also doing like biology. He was doing yeah. a lot of anatomy. Like it, was a, it was going to be a plurality of what he wrote. But he never published. And in fact, by the time he died, alchemy was already a pseudoscience, right? People, it was already embarrassing. And so his supporters were happy to sort of bury that as well. So it was kind of like a, a secret, you know, that, that Newton was an alchemist. But because there's so many writings, historians have been able to go and go, yeah, look at this. He was writing a ton about alchemy. And he really bought it. So very, very quickly, Newton thought that you know, in order to understand the mind of God, you have physics, math, and alchemy. Like These were the three pillars of his understanding of the world. They were equal pillars. Alchemy was right there. And, and the supernatural alchemy, not just early chemistry. Very interesting. Plus he was a bastard. Plus he was a bastard. <laughs> He's more of a bastard. So that was a pretty good division. And you guys actually, you actually scared the audience away from the correct answer. (laughs) Great. Whatever, I'm so happy. See how bad Bob's science communication is? (laughs) Don't forget, these are brothers. It's all with love. They say it with love. Right. All right, right. Evan, give us a quote. I don't know if we'll have time for any questions, but give us a quote. All right. It may be research and it may be important, but unless enough details of the experimental methodology are made available so that it can be subjected to true reproductibility tests by skeptics, it isn't science. Dan Gelzeter from the uh, University of Notre Dame, a biochemist and uh, molecular biologist. Good quote. All right. Thank you all for joining us. We got to go, but we'll be hanging out over here if you have any questions. Thanks, guys. Thank you all. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about another sponsor this week, LinkedIn. When you need to hire someone for your business, when you need to bring an employee into the company that you work for, 
man, you got to hire the absolute right person for the position. How do you find the right person to fit that position? You could post it on a job board and you could hope that the right person is going to find you. But why are you going to leave anything like that up to chance or, you know, how about putting it in a newspaper? Forget about it. So instead of posting on the job boards, post your job to a place where people go every day and where they go to make connections. Where is this place? Where is this magical place? It's called LinkedIn. Most LinkedIn members have not recently visited the top job boards, but 9 out of 10 members are open to new opportunities. With 70% of the U.S. workforce on LinkedIn, it's the best way to get your job opportunity in front of more of the right people. And in case you didn't know, there is a new hire made every 10 seconds using LinkedIn. So guys, hurry to linkedin.com slash skeptics and you'll get $50 off your first job post. That's linkedin.com slash skeptics for $50 off. Terms and conditions apply. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. And we're back. I hope you enjoyed our live show at AAAS, but we're going to fill in a couple of segments. Uh, Jay. Yeah. Get us up to date on Who's That Noisy? Last week, Steve, I played this noisy. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> You know what it sounds like to me? <laughs> sounds like someone going, It's a frog, see? So my favorite funny guess is that this is Bob before he has his coffee in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's about, yeah. I'm far crankier than that implies. <laughs> wow. So just to throw a few of the common guesses I got that were wrong but that were fun. A lot of people guessed that it was a whale. Mm -hmm. um, which it isn't. We had a guess from this person's name, very cool name. It's it's Torbjorn. Torbjorn, uh, thank you for telling me how to pronounce your name. He so said, that's for, that's the name of a character from uh, Overwatch. Oh, cool. Oh, yeah, that's right. That yeah. is really cool. I wonder My if daughter that. Rachel plays, and I think she told me that. Yeah. I wonder if he's named him. That's a fake name after that character. I doubt it. Yeah. Uh, he says, thanks for your excellent work. I believe that Who's That Noisy this week was a creaking whale. Uh, he thinks it's a sperm whale. A lot of people guessed that, Tor, uh, but I used yours because you told me how to pronounce your name. Thank you. Uh, that's wrong. <laughs> we have a listener named Mike Bennett. He, saw, he said, hello, my name is James, and I'm seven years old from Victoria, B.C. My dad, Mike, and I think it was a polar bear cub. Have a good day, James. James, great guess. And I got to be honest with you, I don't know what a polar bear cub sounds like, and that is not a polar bear cub, but you might be on to something, okay? That was my, my clue to you. Um, and James, thanks for listening to the show. You're seven years old, and you're listening to the SGU. It makes me want to not swear ever again. Don't swear. We've got one more listener named Jacob Hodgard, Hodgard Lutzen. Uh, hi, just the low pitch sound of this week's Noisy Starter playing. I thought to myself, geez, I need to send you guys a sample of... Now, Jacob actually got it right, and he gave me he gave me the great answer, but he didn't win. So I'm just going to say yeah, that wait. Magnus Johansson won, but Jacob gave me a uh, a really cool description of what this is. So I'll get right back to what he said. Geez, I need to send you guys a sample of a puffin, and then I realized I actually was listening to one. I'm from the uh, 
Faroe Islands, Ooh. F-A-R-O-E Islands, and we have loads of these charming birds in certain areas. This is, of course, the Atlantic puffin to be exact. Now, check this out. This is where I really like his email. He's, he gives real interesting details here. They're really small. They're cute. People are always surprised at the, leered, the weird low noises that they make. The Danes call them uh, Sapangior, which translates to sea parrots, which is pretty suiting. Their beaks are super cool and rainbow-colored and makes them look like parrots of the sea. Now, here's some fun facts. Fun fact number one, I remember reading that the cute porgs in Star Wars, The Last Jedi, are, the, are ah. only there because there were puffins everywhere at the recording location, so they had to replace them with something during the editing. If that's true, <laughs> Is that true? that's cool. If it's true, it's cool. I, I, I'd like people to email me in if they know for certain, uh, but I wouldn't doubt it, and that would, be, that would make me tolerate the porgs a lot more. Um, <laughs> The second fun fact, number two, they're really tasty. The meat is extremely dark and very fat, so you can only eat a little before being overwhelmed by the fat. Um, they used to eat yeah. them back in the day, but then there was a dip in the population. He, he goes on to say this, so they had to stop eating them. And then we also know that porgs are supposed to be very tasty as well. So, huh? Maybe the pork uh, thing is true. Oh, he no, did tell me how to say his name. Laugh. It's not Jacob. It's Jakob. 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 Okay. Yeah. So – Magnus Johansson has won. Johansson has won this week, and I, I want to thank you guys for guessing. Everyone that sent in, there was a lot of lot of fun emails this week. Uh, but as you know, there can be only one. So this was originally sent in by a listener named uh, Oyvind, and he he said, "Hey, you didn't pronounce my name that bad," which I thought was really cool. And he <laughs> said, how does he pronounce it? Oyvind, Oyvind, <laughs> and he retracts his previous statement. <laughs> <laughs> he said, the, "He said the O is silent." Um, uh, he said, "I'm not the same Oyvind that has wrote to you previously." Oh, he isn't, but I can confirm that it is definitely pronounced Charles, not. The O is just silent. What? Get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I've got a new noisy for you guys this week, sent in by a listener named Mark Herzog. Can someone named John Smith please send me a noisy? Because <laughs> I'm reading this last name and I'm like, nope, I did not pronounce that correctly. Anyway, uh, here is the noisy for this week. This noisy, I'm giving you a clue. This noisy is something that happened. Okay? Mm-hmm. And here it is. That's it. It's a lot to unpack there. There's yeah. a lot going on. Whatever it is, going I hate on. when that happens. Tell me what <laughs> happened. Tell me what it is. Tell me what happened. I think this is a little different noisy for everyone because it's more of an event that took place right. than it is like just some weird noise. Uh, anyway, if you think you know what this week's noisy is, and my God, if you have heard something cool and you're not sending it to me, I'm going to know. And you're not going <laughs> to like what I do. Send me your noisies. I need to hear it. You find something on YouTube, you, you know, it's late at night, and you email yourself the next day to remind yourself to send it to me, and I'll play it if it's great. And you could do all this at WTN at theskepticsguide.org. I'm very interested in what James has to say about that noisy. <laughs> me too. James, send me your guess. All right. right. Thank you, Jay. You got uh, it. So just a couple of uh, follow-ups. So first, uh, the science fiction that we just did at the AAAS earlier in this episode – you remember you may remember this from 10 minutes ago we had a conversation about what was the biggest structure in the solar system because some of the sources i read said that it was jupiter's magnetic field which is massive uh, and bob raised the very legitimate question so what about the sun's magnetic field um and while that's not what the sources that i had read said 
uh, that does seem reasonable. And in fact, definitely the heliosphere is bigger than that. So they must not have been counting the heliosphere. And if you do, it's got to be the second biggest thing in the solar system. But Bob, you did some further research on it too. Yeah. I mean, you could always just go to the heliosphere, which is basically the the influence of the sun's solar wind and, uh, and magnetic field to, I think, a lesser extent. But that defines the extent of the solar wind. Uh, uh, if you go to NASA, I found at some NASA websites and even Wikipedia that uh, they claim at least that the, the biggest contiguous structure in the solar system is the what's called the heliospheric current sheet, which I wasn't too familiar with. And it, it's really fascinating. It's basically a, a surface. It's a surface that's, that's spread out throughout the solar system of where the polarity of the sun's magnetic field changes from north to south. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's basically like the magnetic equator. Uh, of, of, of the solar system in, in a sense. And b- because the sun's so, uh, magnetic field is slowly rotating, it induces an electrical current in the sheet. It's tiny. It's only like one ten billionth of an amp per square meter. But I mean, it, it goes, you know, it goes to the basically the full extent of the, of the heliosphere. Um, you know, all the way, I guess, to the heliopause, the very end of the, the influence of, uh, of, of the sun's solar wind. So this is, it's 10,000 kilometers thick. Um, and we, it's, and, uh, this is near the, uh, the orbit of Earth. So from one side of our orbit to the other, we, we're actually going in and out of this, of this thing. So it's, it's a fascinating structure. Uh, it has a, it, it impacts, you know, it interacts with the, with the, uh, with the plasma in the, in this, in the solar system and, uh, and the, um, you know, the different phases of the sun. It's really fascinating, but it's generally considered, at least by NASA, which I will trust as being the biggest uh, structure. Uh, in the you know in the entire solar system, yeah, but, that sounds you know, right. But so yeah, so that kind of like yeah, I knew, I knew there had to be something bigger. But that's not to say that the the Jupiter's mag- magnetosphere is not gargantuan and impressive as hell, just not as big as the heliospheric current sheet. Right. So it's the second biggest thing in the solar system, pretty much. Yes. Are both of yeah. those things? I mean, I know that they're actually things. If we're talking about things, right? Which is a pretty <laughs> vague term. Like what if is you include thing? fields. Yes, exactly, because you said structure, and yes. I, it's confusing to me because they don't seem to be structures; they seem to be fields, which are don't have structure. Yeah, but no, they, they have structure, don't they? No, they, yeah. they definitely have a shape. They okay. definitely have a, have a shape. I know they have a shape, but they're not. But they're like waves, right? They're not physical. I mean, ugh, it's so confusing when we get down to this debate, right? No, it's About, not a wave. It's a scalar field. It's a field. Yeah. But it, a field is, is not a particle or a actual no. thing. <laughs> but it is a thing. It's that spooky action at a distance. Yeah. It's the l- invisible lattice work. <laughs> yeah, right. I feel like because we develop these terms yeah. on Earth based on our kind of near references, that thing is pretty broad and vague, right? That's just a noun. Yes, it's a thing. It's a noun. But structure, I think, if you're not a physicist, probably mm-hmm. often implies – some something that's like a solid. Something yeah, well, it's definitely not that. I mean? But yeah. you could draw it. Like you could draw the. Magnetic yeah, you can draw. Field you can draw drawing. Same thing with yeah. magnetic fields too, right? Yeah, or Higgs fields saying. or whatever. Like, is obviously they're structural from like a very basic like physics perspective. But in colloquial language, there's something that feels ineffable about them. They don't feel like a structural mm-hmm. thing. So. One more thing to talk about. So last week, Evan, you mm-hmm. presented a news item about the decline of insects. And uh, since we recorded that, there's been a lot of further conversation about that data. So it definitely needs an update. Things are, as we like to say, things are more complicated. 
you know, yeah, as that's, they at first seemed. Most certainly. And I had taken notice of the Guardian's reporting and specifically, which is what, what a lot of other people also were referring to. And their headline, which read, Plummeting Insect Numbers Threaten Collapse of Nature, which is a pretty stunning Which we headline. didn't like because it was hyperbolic. About, yeah. Right, right. And I think we tried to avoid some of the more sensational aspects of this. Yeah. Um, but it, but our information was basically incomplete at the time because since then there have been others in the world of insects, specialists who have expressed their disagreement with the conclusions of the study's authors and that the observations of insect decline are not indicative of a collapse of nature or anything even close to it. Well, not only that. So, I mean, so there, that's one issue is like how, what's the implication of the declining insect numbers? But I've also, so again, this is what, what typically happens is we may report on something that's fairly fresh and mm -hmm. then it gets sort of post-publication peer-reviewed by the community, and then we have to report on the community's reaction. Sometimes it's better if we wait a few days to hear what that community reaction is before we report on it. But in any case, there's a couple of things. So one is, yeah, we, we kind of knew that it was hyperbolic, but that aside, you know, the, the concerning thing is the declining insect numbers. But now there, there, the, the uh, other experts are saying, we can't even really conclude that insect numbers are declining. There's a couple of reasons for that. One is that we really don't have good baseline numbers. We, the bottom line is we don't know how many insects there are. And so mm -hmm. because we don't have a good baseline, it's hard to tell that the numbers are actually declining. Actually decline, yeah. yeah. Mm. Added to that, the samples were tiny. And so, meaning the number of insect species they were looking at and the regions they were looking at. And right. so we don't know if this is worldwide. We don't know if it's some species in favor of others. Other species may be increasing. Other areas may be increasing. We don't know. It was a review of 73 studies, and they're saying that's kind of a woefully low number yeah. to make any sort of hard conclusions. Exactly. And then not only that, but the researchers essentially looked for papers that showed mm. an insect decline. They basically mm. searched on insect decline, right? They were saying, show me papers that show that insects are declining. So it's cherry-picked by definition. They didn't – it wasn't a survey of all studies looking at insect numbers. They just – and – but that's – still, that doesn't mean that we can completely ignore this. This is maybe an early warning that maybe there's something going on here that we need to look at. But we need to, to put this into the proper perspective as a preliminary finding that needs to be followed up with more thorough evaluations. So at this point, we basically don't know mm -hmm. uh, is, that, I think, the bottom line. Yeah, there's uh, woefully inadequate uh, information to, to go off of. We just don't have the history of the studies that need to be done for this, this kind of yeah. – these kinds of conclusions to be drawn. And, uh, you know, they, in fact, they said that that was really the main takeaway here is, mm -hmm. the, is the lack of information that we right. have. Right, right, right. But and that's the most important thing right now. They're happy that a lot of attention is being drawn to uh, to insects because they are. Uh, yes. and, and we've discussed that before. They're they're very, very understudied, undertaught, and people don't pay enough attention to them. Uh, what we really need are studies where we establish a good baseline and then follow it over time, so we could see if this is a if this is a fluctuation or a real trend and how what the extent of it is. A couple other interesting tidbits I came across when I was reading articles about this. One article claimed that there are more species of ladybugs than there are mammals. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is wow. in, in, of just ladybugs. <laughs> yeah. no, forget forget about beetles. One type or, of beetle, well, right. Yeah. What, I mean what yeah. what kind 
Yeah, I mean, they, you've read many times that there's more Beatles, a variety of Beatles out there than anything. Than anything but, else, yeah. Yeah, but this is just one type of Beatle. But here's the thing. So first of all, in the UK, do you know what they call ladybugs? No. They call them ladybirds. Ladybirds? Yes. Okay. Or they call them they call them lady beetles. Yeah, that uh, makes sense. Yeah, ed- etymologists don't like ladybug because they're not bugs. So it's kind of a yeah, misnomer. Yeah. It's kind of like starfish or jellyfish. Yeah. You know, they're not fish. Mm. Ladybugs aren't bugs. But still, I think the term ladybug is adorable. But ladybird's <laughs> okay. Although ladybird kind of sounds like a bird, but whatever. Um, <laughs> but so I, I did some further – I did my own independent – quote unquote research to look to see if those numbers hold up and it's actually not true but the numbers are close so what i found is the most recent update of the number of known ladybug or ladybird species is about 6000 and although the, there's probably many more but that's the number that we know about and the latest number of extant known mammal species mm-hmm. is 6399 so they're okay. very close but it's mammals close. have edged out the the ladybugs they also said there are more ant species than bird species, and that totally checks out. Right now, there are about 15,000 known species of ants, but the estimate is anywhere between twenty and 40,000 total species in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just don't – we haven't identified the rest. That's why it's an estimate. And there are not as many known bird species. We think there's probably 18,000 bird species in the world. So. The, the, there, there's more bird species than known ant species, but if you total ant species, is probably more by about twice as much. So and I also read for the million different types of insects that they have identified, there may be as many as a million more that we haven't identified yes. yet. Yeah, exactly. A million species of just insects. So, and you know, it's because they're small. Uh, so there's a, <laughs> the world's a bigger place for them, you know, and they are just highly successful. They're very diverse. They've mastered things like flight, you know, some of them. So extremely, extremely successful group of animals. And and we need to study them. Remember we talked about the fact that like they're only like 1% of biology classes deal with insects when they're the most of, of like the living world out there, probably mm-hmm. only rivaled by bacteria, you know. Yeah, because we have a bias. We have this, I don't know, cultural bias, I think it is against insects. You know, they're considered icky, yucky things to a lot of people. And that's not fair. It's not at all fair. And they are, they are critical to our, to our ecosystems. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We have to start paying attention to them. So guys, don't forget that, uh, we're really trying to get to our 4,000 patron goal by the end of the year. Yeah. Uh, but whenever we cross that threshold, we're going to be doing a live streaming 12 hour SGU marathon. Uh-huh. Uh, that will be our reward to our listeners for uh, crossing that threshold of patrons. Uh, and we're gonna, we're trying to do it on the set of the Starship Enterprise. Which would be super cool. That's the one that we visited a couple years ago now. Uh, Ticonderoga, New York? Yeah. It's, I mean, an amazing, amazing set. And if we could make that work, that's the goal. If not, we'll do it from our own studio. But we'll do – it'll be a, a ton of fun either way. So if you haven't looked recently at our Patreon page, take a look. Consider becoming a member at any level. We appreciate any support that you give us. And we're cranking out the premium content. We're trying to produce as much premium content as possible. At the moment, there are 111 pieces of premium <laughs> content up. I think actually we just crossed 
112, but there's a, there's a lot and there's more all the time. And if there's something in particular that you want, just email us. If you say, oh, I'd love to see you guys do this. We'll do it. Just let us know. We'll do it. Yeah, we'll do it. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, all right, guys. Thank you all for joining me. This is kind of a double episode. We had half at the AAAS, then half on our normal recording night. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, Steve. Thank you. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information, visit us at theskepticsguide.org. Send your questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. And if you would like to support the show and all the work that we do, go to patreon.com slash skepticsguide and consider becoming a patron and becoming part of the SGU community. Our listeners and supporters are what make SGU possible. 